0: and you can get an extra three months free. ExpressVPN.com slash SlashFilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to SlashFilm Daily for Wednesday, August 28th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to be gathering around the virtual water cooler and talking about what we've been up to lately. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I am joined on today's episode by SlashFilm managing editor, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend editor, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writers, Tran Bui.
1: Hey, everyone.
0: And Chris Evangelista.
2: Hello, folks.
0: All right, guys. So Peter is not feeling well, unfortunately. That's why the big D23 episode has been delayed uh, yet again. But I think he's hopefully going to be feeling better, uh, better enough anyway, to come on the podcast tomorrow and talk all about this crazy stuff that he saw this past weekend. Uh, But in the meantime, let's gather around the virtual water cooler and talk about what we've been doing. So, Jacob, uh, let's start with you. What have you been up
3: to? Uh, I turned 31, Ben, and I'm not sure how I feel about it. Happy birthday. Uh, uh, Thank you. But I'm just trying to um, feel like I quietly reached the age where I no longer have any excuses for myself. I feel like when you're in your 20s, you're in your 20s, you can make mistakes, so you'll learn. I feel like I've crossed that threshold where all my mistakes are my own, and I can no longer blame my youth. And that's a very weird thing to be experiencing and being self-aware about. And so I'm just going to throw out this existential question to the group uh, at what point did you realize that you were you were a fully formed human being in, in how to be responsible for yourself And is that too much of a question to ask <laughs> at, at, in a, on a lazy wednesday afternoon oh man on a movie podcast no less <laughs> is it okay if i say not yet <laughs>
0: Um, man, yeah, that's a that's a tough one, Jacob. But I, I sort of like I've never thought about it in those terms. But I think I've had the same feeling or I had the same feeling right around the same age that, that 30, you know, crossing the, the 30 threshold and especially into the lower 30s. It's like, you're, you know, yeah, you're just in a, a different phase of your life. And the same, it seems like, for me, anyway, I'm I'm 33 about to turn 34 next month. And my 20s just seem like ages ago even though it really wasn't but just like the i don't know the delineation there's definitely a line that gets drawn that you that you cross you know into a a different type
3: of world
2: what repeat the question what (laughs) (laughs)
3: Uh, at what point did you realize you and only you were responsible for your
2: successes and your failures oh man like when i was like seven probably and (laughs) just (laughs) realizing i was doomed something like that (laughs) i just
0: picture like a a seven-year-old chris like late in the night like smoking a cigar drinking scotch and typing out a movie review or something (laughs) (laughs)
3: Uh, and also the other thing was that i realized that this is my 10-year anniversary of writing about movies on the internet I went and found my first article I ever wrote uh, for a site called scifisquad.com. It no longer exists, uh, but the headline is still on Google. It was about the fictional Navi language of Avatar. And this made me realize that in addition to crossing over into some sort of age threshold, I am now officially somehow part of the established order of you know film people on the internet. And that so many of the people who contribute to film are all people who are significantly younger than me. And I'm just having a crisis moment of realizing, am I part of the club? Where where was my invite? When did that happen? And it's just – I'm having a moment right now, guys. I'm having (laughs) a very melancholy existential crisis of where do I fit into this world that apparently has accepted me and I do not know how to deal with it.
0: Well, I think you fit – you fit rather well, Jacob. We'll, we'll just put it that way. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I don't know. I <laughs> As can't... someone
1: in my 20s, I'm not experiencing any of this. I'm going to be young forever. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we'll check just back kidding. in with you um, and, in mo- a few I- years, H.T. <laughs> <age two. laughs> uh, just other... kidding.
1: My 30s are looming, and I am a little bit daunted by it. So thanks for telling me it all gets better, Jacob.
3: <laughs> uh, I think 32 is going to be a good one. Uh, but you know what? Uh, on a happier note, since Peter is in here, someone else talked about dieting. I bought... Uh, pants from the non big and tall section for the first time uh, in about 15 years so uh, it turns out that dieting exercise you know works and you should do it if you want to lose weight (laughs) and was there a question mark at the end of that (laughs) i don't know i'm throwing it out there ben do you do do people lose weight if they diet and exercise
0: i mean i think so i'm not a a dietitian or a uh scientist or anything but I, I think that's the the general uh, uh common sense right like I, I mean maybe it uh it works differently
3: for different people but i think that's probably a good start yeah i know peter and i have talked about a lot on this podcast about you know our various experiences and ups and downs but the one thing i've learned over the past you know eight months is you know if you find something that works for you and you stick to it it, it works and that seemed like a hard thing because not every program is going to work for everybody but you know i'm I turned 31 in the best shape of my adult life, and, you know, I am hoping to not backtrack or fall apart, so uh, this is my, if you're going to turn 31, you might as well do it not being dead by 40.
4: Yeah,
0: I mean, well, I think I can speak for all of this in saying that we're all proud of you, Jacob, and even though you did cross an age threshold, you've dropped in a a, a clothing threshold, which is good news, so uh, I, I think ultimately you're evening out, right? Yeah.
3: Enough about me. People hate me. Let's go. Move on. Move on. <laughs> uh,
0: I just wanted to note here because I don't know when else I would do this that I've been living in Los Angeles for 10 years now. I think uh, maybe like today might actually be the the 10th anniversary of me moving to this insane city. So um, I don't. I'm gonna be like traveling in the next few days. So I'm not gonna have. I like years ago I envisioned writing like a, a huge Facebook post to like commemorating all of the, you know, wild things that I've seen out here and all of this stuff. And that was before I like basically just gave up on Facebook as a <laughs> as a company. Um, and so I'm not going to do that. But I just I thought that it would be worth mentioning for if no other reason than just to have it said out loud on the record somewhere so I can look back on it years later and be like, oh, yeah, that was the day.
3: While we're soul-searching, why did you move to L.A., Ben? It was because you wanted to write about movies? It was, yeah. Um, yeah, I actually
0: had the... I, I got a job uh, in New York, I, so I was living in Florida, and I was trying to choose between whether to go to New York City or to come to L.A. I knew that ultimately I wanted to write about movies, and I uh, visited some friends in New York City and uh, crashed on their couch for a little bit and got an interview with David Letterman, who was still doing his uh, late show on CBS at the time, and ended up getting that job and they offered it to me and I turned it down because I was like, New York is just gonna be a stop along the way. I know I wanna make it out to LA eventually because that's where you sort of have to be if you want to, you know, cover the junkets and stuff that I like doing and doing the interviews in person and all that stuff. So uh, I just turned down that job and came out here with no job and like a couple friends, but no real prospects and sort of just, you know, scrabbled my way <laughs> into this uh, pretty wild career. So
2: Ben, um, Ben, tell me, uh, I've seen a lot of movies. When you came to L. A. alone, did you perhaps get off an old timey bus carrying one suitcase?
0: <laughs> I actually had a stick with like. Like a handkerchief tied around <laughs>
2: the end the of, the of it. You a and Yeah, the just, Like show
1: up in the background <laughs> and you gaze, like, awe inspired. Yeah, all did you? Did the,
2: yeah, did the bus <laughs> let you off exactly at the Hollywood sign? Because that's <laughs> everything that happens in the movies. Like yeah. just, The sign's just right there. Yeah. And and it's reflected you, in your sunglasses.
0: And then you realize <laughs> it's like a like a six mile hike down to like any you know actual normal streets. So you're like, well. Got to take my stick and my handkerchief and trek on down the road. Uh, I wish all of that happened, but uh, but sadly it did not. But um, all right, let's move into uh, what we've been reading. Jacob, you're the only one among us who is uh, has been cultured this week in that uh, in that area. What have you been reading?
3: It's a shame Peter isn't here because this is a book I think he'd be interested in. It's called Theme Park Design by David Younger, and this is not a casual, entertaining flip through and enjoy pictures book it is a literal textbook designed to be used in a theoretical theme park design college course. It has, it is massive. It is full of information and quotes from all kinds of theme park engineers and designers from, you know, decades of, of the industry. And it's everything from how to design a pleasing, you know, exterior of a ride entrance to building paths that look nice and actually keep traffic going, uh, electricity for attractions, training staff, uh, writing stories and dialogue for attractions and training performers and people working the rides. It is literally a comprehensive, everything you need to know about running a running and designing a theme park in one $65 book. It is really, really an amazing piece of work. And even though I don't work in the theme park industry, it is an astonishing thing. There, there are so many textbooks about every single subject, and I don't think I've ever encountered a full-fledged... You know, comprehensive textbook about this subject before. I think it's something that people usually stumble into because they're an engineer or an artist or a writer, and they get hired to work at theme parks and it's something that kind of fallen backwards. Where this book, you know, sets out to educate you for this one industry. And I'm really impressed by it. Like it's not something you pick up casually, but if it's if you're genuinely interested in this world, either professionally or you know as a curiosity, it is a must buy. I'm really excited to be reading it. I read a
0: lot of stuff, not theme park related, but movie related stuff, you know, in in the hopes of maybe learning something that I didn't know before that could help me understand the industry better. And, you know, we write about it all the time. We write a lot about theme parks at Slash Film as well. We're like one of the only major movie blogs to do that. Have you learned anything in this book that you, um, I guess, can apply to your understanding and your writing about theme park culture?
3: uh bits and pieces here and there i, I said it, it's literally it's literally a massive giant textbook so it's hard for me to like pinpoint one thing right now but i, I do feel like it is full of enough knowledge that going forward i'm going to be armed better for sure
0: Yeah, and I love that you have, like, this huge library, and you use it as, like, reference materials when you're writing. Like, you get up and go into the other room and, like, pull down a book and, like, flip open pages and cite sources and all that stuff. That's, like, that's the dream. If I had enough Uh, space, I would love to do that.
3: (laughs) That's why I got to leave L.A.
0: and come to Texas, where land is cheap. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Uh, All right, let's talk about what we've been watching. Jacob and HT both saw Ready or Not, uh, since Jacob just spoke. HT, why don't you go first? What did you think about this one?
1: I really liked Ready or Not. Um, I don't think I was prepared to, for how funny this movie was. I know that it was billed as a horror movie, but I think it's more appropriate to call it a horror comedy because it's very winking, it's very satirical, and has like this black comedy edge to it. And um, I think that it's just a, it's such a fun film to watch. It's just, like more of a fun experience than anything. Uh, the social commentary to this movie. I saw a really great tweet that said that this, ready or not, doesn't have any subtext. It's all text, but I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's very much upfront about its whole kill the rich sort of mentality, and it really embraces that. And uh, Samara Weaving, who stars in this film as Grace, the um, the young bride of an heir to a game board company – Dominion uh, and mm-hmm. finds herself <laughs> finds herself um, the target of a sort of sick hunt by the, her in-laws because of uh, some sort of sacrificial rights that they've been uh, keep holding up for the past century or so. Uh, as she's just so great in this role, she's funny, she's hilarious, she's uh, whip smart, and she reminds me a lot of um, a cross between. Buffy the Vampire Slayer meets uh, Veronica Sawyer from Heathers, that kind of really wry disposition that makes her such, just really a joy to watch. So I like this movie a lot. It's, um, yeah, I, like, I think um, Chris was a little less warm to it, but I liked it a lot more than him.
0: So Jacob, before you talk about it, I, I'm, I've seen some comparisons to You're Next, which is a movie that I really enjoyed that also involved uh, like a female protagonist going into a family that uh where where a scenario in a house um turns murderous the details are slightly different but um how would you compare ready or not to your next and what did you think about ready or not
3: uh, i think ready or not rules and i like it more than your next i like your next quite a bit but i think that um adam wingard who directed it didn't have a, a very sure hand on directing action uh, at that time whereas uh matt bettinelli open and tyler gillett uh who Usually direct under the name Radio Silence. They did, you know, a short for VHS, a short for Southbound, and other horror uh, movies and shorts. Uh, they have a real eye for staging the gore and the violence and the uh, chaotic chase scenes more so than your next. So on that level alone, even though I think both scripts are very sharp and both are very fun movies, uh, and, and I think that Radio Not takes the edge here. But they'd make a great double feature and. She's right, Samara Weaving uh, rules in this movie. Uh, I also enjoyed her in the horror movies uh, Mayhem and The Babysitter. So I feel like this is like a trilogy of Samara Weaving arriving in the horror genre in a really big, exciting way. I know she's co-starring in the next Bill and Ted movie next, so it's like she's going to be stuck in horror forever. But I hope she keeps returning to the genre because she has just the perfect combination of Scream Queen and Fearless Killer that I really want to see more of uh yeah this movie is such a blast and uh, it's unpredictable and it's hilarious and it's extremely violent and we'll be talking about the last five minutes when we talk about our best scenes of the year uh list uh in december
0: yeah i've heard so many good things about this movie i haven't had a chance to check it out myself yet but it's definitely on my list of things to catch up with uh chris what have you been watching recently
2: uh, I have been burning through, I'm actually out of episodes, uh, the Netflix baking series uh, nailed it. Um, it's a show where people who are not very good bakers try to recreate, you know, really fancy things that people post on Pinterest and the, the results are always terrible. And uh, I had avoided this show for a very long time. Because I thought it was gonna be like really mean spirited and like mocking these these people who just can't bake, but it's actually a, a surprisingly sweet show where everyone's like in on the joke and they're not like laughing at the contestants, they're laughing with them, and uh, it's also just really funny. So if if life has got you down, and if it does, I don't blame you. Put on Nailed It. You'll feel a little bit better about the horribleness of everything it's 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 a fun show
0: this sounds familiar has somebody say... else talked about this on the podcast before Nobody. Um, okay. All right. I Sorry. So, HG, I, just go wanna,
1: ahead. I, I just wanted to say that it, it makes me really happy whenever Chris talks about baking shows because it just—it's such an unusual um, like passion of his, and it's just—it's really sweet that he likes <laughs> baking shows like this. The whole They're fun. One.
2: I'm very excited. The the new Great British Bake Off episodes are coming to Netflix this Friday, so my wife and I have our plans locked and loaded watching that show. <laughs> Chris contains
0: multitudes. Uh, all right, let's talk uh, Let's talk to Brad. What have you been checking out recently?
4: I finally got around to seeing Good Boys. I've been too busy to make it to the theater very often. I'm trying to catch up on stuff. Um, and I was, had been so excited to see this that I just needed to go out of my way to watch it. And it did not disappoint. Uh, it's probably my favorite comedy of the year. Uh, it's exactly what I want it to be. It's uh, raunchy, hilarious. Uh, all three of the kids are great. But I particularly loved Keith L. Williams uh in this in this movie he's just so like adorably innocent and the way he reacts to situations um he has some of the best lines in the movie and yeah and it but it also has that you know the the heart that you really like too and it has you know an, an interesting um and authentic approach to growing up and how middle school kids are kind of dealing with a lot more probably than adults think they are and that, you know, I, I think even from when, you know, when I was in middle school, a lot has changed and there's so much more uh, pressure and finding out about things even earlier than you used to. But what I also love, in addition to the the kind sort of dirtier side of the comedy, is that there's a lot of really great like young kid stuff in here that it's like, oh, yeah, that's exactly what a middle schooler would do or say or like it, it's all like mixed in there, just like them complaining about like um, that it's four miles to get to the mall on their bikes um and then so at one point one of the kids saying "Ugh, say it don't spray it you know in the middle of spouting off f-bombs and all of these things and just the way that they so hilariously misunderstand the most inappropriate things about like how you know certain sex things work and they just they don't entirely understand it even though they think they do um it's just it, it was great i really i really liked it a lot cool what else have you been watching uh, and then I watched uh, the recommendation of one of my friends who told me that I should go out of my way to check this out. I've been I've fallen really behind on stand up stuff. I'm usually good about keeping up on, on it. But uh, Nate Bargatze has a comedy special on Netflix called The Tennessee Kid, um, and it is so good. And one of the things that I didn't even realize this until my girlfriend pointed it out is that he's a comedian actually who works clean and you don't even realize it. He's just a great. Uh, storyteller and he's uh dry he's got a little bit of like a a, a southern charm to him uh, without feeling like he's on like the blue collar comedy tour or anything like that and uh, yeah it was uh, one of the best stand specials I've seen uh, in recent memory and it's uh, it's hilarious and we actually uh, in the middle of it t- towards the end of his special he does like an update on a couple things that he had talked about in his episode of the standups which is. Uh, kind of Netflix's version of Comedy Central Presents where they give comedians half-hour sets um, and kind of raise their profile a bit. So we actually uh, paused at that moment and went and watched his that half-hour episode because I hadn't seen it yet to be all up to date on that so we could be better in on the jokes that he was telling towards the end of his special. Uh, and it was worth it. It was um, His stand-up episode is great too. But uh, yeah, if you're looking for a good stand-up comedy special, Nate Bergazzi, The Tennessee Kid, it's on Netflix. Check it out. Awesome. Uh, Jacob, what have you been watching? Well,
3: with Angel Has Fallen in theaters, I decided to go watch Olympus Has Fallen, so this is on Netflix right now, and I continue to be flabbergasted that there is a Has Fallen trilogy, because this first movie is so awful. It is... (laughs) Had you ever seen it before? I had seen it, and it is not as racist as the second one, London Has Fallen, but it's so cheap-looking. The whole thing looks like it was shot on a budget with CGI that looks like it's from the PlayStation 3. It is... Just a technical nightmare. All the sets are cheap-looking. It, it, the whole thing reeks of having no money and big ambitions. Uh, at least ambitions on budget, because the script itself is just, just the uh, most hair-brained, die-hard rip-off you've ever seen. And I don't understand. I don't understand how this one was the hit in 2013 when White House Down is the good one of the two White House invasion movies of 2013. Uh, White House Down is so silly and. Self-aware and Olympus Has Fallen is just such trash, it, and it's it's so up its own ass about America uh, in a way that is especially gross in 2019. This movie did not deserve a sequel. It did not deserve a third one. And I, I say all of this having watched it for a second time willingly, and having kind of enjoyed myself because it is <laughs> it goes down really easily. It's like bad pizza, man. It, it, you eat it and say this is bad pizza, but it's still pizza. And Olymp- uh, Olympus Has Fallen is bad pizza, so t- take from that what you will.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I have to say that I enjoyed this movie more than White House Down, because White House Down, at the time, I just found to be so um, edgeless. Like, all, all of the edges were sanded off, and and at least Olympus Has Fallen uh, features Gerard Butler running around stabbing people in the head and, like, doing insane action things and, and just sort of being... Generally wild-eyed and a little bit crazier, and the the movie just feels more dangerous to me. So it it's more memorable in that way. Like looking back at at White House Down, I just I can't remember any of the jokes. I didn't really you know appreciate the dynamic between Channing Tatum and Jamie Foxx. I didn't think that was particularly memorable. But I it's gonna take a lot to get me to forget uh, Gerard Butler's performance in the first Olympus Has Fallen. I never saw London Has Fallen, but I wonder you know anybody else, Chris or or. Uh, Brad or HC, did you guys see um, both of these movies at the time or or since? And do you have a, a prefer a preference or a favorite between the two?
4: Yeah, I saw uh, both of them in theaters. Um, <laughs> and because uh, I kind of have a tradition of going to see dumb action movies with my friend Ben, and uh, the like, like kind of like Jacob said, the first one is just yeah, it's 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 bad, but it's fun to watch. The second one. Uh, is worse because it's so much more xenophobic and brazen with the most like archaic approaches to like what the idea of like a terrorist is and that kind of thing um and there's just so many bad lines that gerard butler gets uh so i'm i will probably see angel has fallen at some point especially since i've heard that it's decent uh at least as far as the has fallen trilogy is concerned um but yeah that's that's where i am with uh, with that series uh, Jacob, are you planning on
0: catching up with the third movie?
3: When it's streaming on Netflix in a year or two, maybe. Uh, I mean, I've only ever streamed the sequel. I'm, I'm not going to pay to see these movies at this <laughs> point. Uh, it'll eventually pop up you know, on some kind of service. I will watch it one night and forget about it until it pops up again a few years later.
0: <laughs> nice. All right, so as far as what I've been watching, I caught Good Time. I watched this on Amazon Prime. Uh, H.T. recently saw it outside in Queens, right? You talked about that on a recent episode of The Water Cooler.
1: Yeah, I did. That was really fun. And that was actually my second time seeing it. But um, I'm glad that you got to see it for the first time.
0: So I'd heard good things about this movie, especially from you guys, and and especially in terms of Robert Pattinson, who stars in the movie. and, And, you know, I think, Chris, you recommended, like, if I was looking for a good entry point into Robert Pattinson's work, uh, you know, like more serious work as an actor, this would be a good place to start. And I appreciated this movie on that level. I think, I don't know. I, I like the propulsiveness of it. I, I really like the score, which is this cool sort of like electronic synthy kind of vibe. Um, I liked the scope of it, how it's like relatively uh, low key. It's just like this sort of dirty, uh, it's like a dirty crime heist movie. Um, but I, I think I actually liked the dynamic between Robert Pattinson and I think it's uh, Benny Safdie. This movie is is uh, directed by Josh and Benny Safdie. And Benny stars as Pattinson's character's brother, who is like developmentally disabled. And I, I liked their dynamic and... They spend the first few minutes of the movie together and then they're separated for the whole rest of it. And I just sort of kept wishing that they would get back together because I liked the the sort of brotherly relationship there. And and um, I don't know, it feels like this is one of those movies where the story got derailed on purpose right at the beginning and I just wish it stayed on the rails a little bit more if that makes any sense i don't know um i i just watched this more this movie this morning before work so i'm still sort of uh, it's still rolling around in my mind a little bit but um i, I wanted to open this up to the, to the floor and and give anybody a, a chance to either defend the movie or uh say anything that you want to about it so uh, let's talk good time
1: I had a similar reaction to you when I first saw it, Ben, actually, because it was a movie that I thoroughly disliked the experience of watching just because it keeps you on edge the entire time. And throughout the film, it slowly dawns on you that Rob Pattinson's character is the worst person. Yeah. <laughs> and that um, the Good Time title really is ironic in that everyone he meets has the worst time. They have a really bad time. Um, but as I got away from the film more, I appreciated a lot for what it was doing in that it was kind of, um, you know, bucking those expectations of what you think a Robert Pattinson-led movie will be and that he is, you know, he is a very capable, pers- capable person and you kind of, the movie kind of wants you to empathize with him for his cute and how smart he is despite him doing these really horrible and um horrific things so i think that um i i know what you're saying i but i think that the beginning that establishes his and his brother's relationship is more just to establish why he's doing all of this mm-hmm. versus just that just being about the two brothers but yeah i think um uh, if you have the same experience as me you might come away from this more liking it further, as the, as you further get away from it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a, a, a quote on the poster for this movie that says, uh, talking about the Safety brothers, there are simply no other modern filmmakers capable of generating this level of comedy and deep-seated suspense at the same time. And I appreciate the suspense thing, although I feel like there are some other modern filmmakers that could, that could do an equal job of that. But the comedy aspect, like, I didn't really find this movie to be that funny. Did, did you guys, anybody who's seen this, did you find good time to be a funny film i think it's funny
3: but i'm also a terrible person <laughs> so what did you think was funny about it jacob do you remember anything specifically or has it been, been too it's, long it's been a few years but i think just the uh escalation of terrible things happening there are no jokes in good time it's just the sort of laugh you have when you realize things are hopeless i, I think for me that's the comedy of the film is looking where it ends and then remembering where it started and trying to remember how one thing became another is a comedy of the film
0: yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, okay, so I've also watched The General, which is the Buster Keaton silent film from 1926. Um, this has been, you know, widely praised as, like, one of the greatest movies of the silent era uh, and maybe one of the greatest movies ever made, and I really enjoyed this movie. It's it's a little, um, <clears throat> excuse me, it's a little strange to watch now because it's a Civil War story where uh, Buster Keaton is on the side of the, of the south, of the Confederates, and... Um, it's just it's odd especially with what's going on in the country right now to sort of try to empathize with uh (laughs) <laughs> with that side of of that conflict um but man there are some really great gags in here and this movie is it's pretty short i think it's only like an hour and 15 minutes or something and it's available for free because there is no like public domain uh, rule on it so it's available on youtube right now it's available on amazon prime uh i would recommend watching it for anybody because the the scope of this thing is really impressive and there are some train sequences uh the whole movie is basically like a, a long chase film um on a train and there's some train stuff in here that's really like uh, considering they made this in the mid-20s it's very very impressive like what they were able to do with this um and and also this i think might be the first thing i've ever seen buster keaton in and just his physicality and, and the way that he um, is able to pull off some of these like uh, stunts and things in this movie. It's it's very impressive. It's like um, it's not a I wouldn't call it a stunt filled movie, but I was never bored and I think it, it moves really quickly and there's a lot going on that you can um, that you can latch onto. So uh, has anybody else here seen The General?
3: Yeah, this movie's great. Uh, Buster Keaton is my favorite silent comedian uh, and. All the time you've heard Jackie Chan speak about how his influence was less Bruce Lee and more Buster Keaton. You can really see that in movies like The General, where Buster Keaton is putting himself in constant crazy levels of danger because this was made at a time before people knew how to do stunts safely or have, you know, extensive visual effects. So there are scenes in this movie where Buster Keaton, using his uh, trademark stone face, not reacting, is doing the most insane, dangerous things imaginable, and his performance is that of somebody who's just going about his day, and it's astonishing to watch. And I think the general is problematic by modern terms because of the whole Confederacy thing, but it is uh, a good representation of his entire career, which is just looking very bored while doing the most amazing things. And it's remarkable <laughs> to watch.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's like you mentioned the danger and it's like, especially with trains, man, like it's not like you can just um, stop and go back to one really quickly and call cut and like, You know uh, reset the scene if something goes slightly wrong like the this is like a huge moving machine that you're dealing with and you can feel the danger in in a lot of these uh action sequences so uh anyway that's the general it's available on amazon prime and i think on youtube right now as well if you want to to check that out and i would recommend doing so Uh, i also had a chance to finish dear white people season three guys i love the first two seasons of dear white people i was praising it for a long time calling it like one of the best uh, live action netflix original shows out there the third season was a huge disappointment for me i don't know if anybody else here has seen this but um the the second season sets up it ends so well with this like cliffhanger about a, a secret society and i was so excited to see how they explored that in the third season and unfortunately the third season could not be less interested in in the cliffhanger. It's almost like they got a completely new set of writers between seasons or they had a, a totally different idea and they were like, you know what, let's let's put that on the back burner for a while and maybe come back and explore it in a future season. But the second season was leading to it in such a direct way that for them to take this roundabout in season three and, and basically just skirt the issue entirely um, was really uh, sort of a shocking development and the lead character who's played by logan browning who's great um it just seems to be sort of spinning her wheels a little bit in this season and because she's like the the driving force behind the show and in, in my view anyway it just feels like it it doesn't know what it's doing and i was very saddened by it and i have almost the same complaints about the handmaid's tale season three which i also finished and same thing like a uh, um Elizabeth Moss's character just seems to be, you know, put in a different. She's in a different house this season, and I'm not going to get into like super spoilery stuff, so you don't have to worry about that if you're if you're still watching it or interested in it. But, um, man, I, I just I feel like that whole season is doing a whole lot of wheel spinning, and I just it becomes more and more difficult to stick through shows like this when. They started so promisingly, and then there's such a precipitous drop in quality later on. It's like you're losing faith in real time that these uh, storytellers know what they're doing. And I've heard rumblings that the showrunner of um, The Handmaid's Tale had the idea or has the idea to keep this going for 10 seasons. And I cannot fathom what that would look like because it's already uh like well past its date i think by the end of season 3 so um HG, i know you were watching this show at at one point did you catch up with the third season
1: um, so I uh watched and reviewed season two, and then I reviewed season three the first six episodes that were available to critics and I felt like the first half of season three at least was uh s- saw sort of an uptick in quality because there was development happening and there was less wheel spinning, which I found to be really frustrating with season two but um as the that the sixth episode ended, I could kind of see it and going back to its soap opera-esque ways mm-hmm. um, in that, you know, there is some sort of melodrama happening with uh, Elizabeth Moss's character, June, and the uh, Waterfords. And it's just come kind of becomes back to their interesting but very repetitive dynamic. Um, and uh, so I... I admittedly have not caught up with season three since I um, since the sixth episode um, because of what I heard and what you were saying too. I heard some from other people as well, so um, I yeah I don't know if I'll keep up with this show honestly because I I really liked the first season um, and I liked what they were doing both thematically, narratively, and visually. I thought that the it was such a spectacularly directed um, series, mm-hmm. but yeah it's just. Um, After, I don't feel confident that these showrunners and these writers know what they're doing beyond the book um, source material.
0: Yeah, I have that same feeling, and like like you, the aesthetics are so. Uh, gorgeous to look at, and I think that's pulled me in and and gotten me through a lot of um, rough patches in the storytelling, but I just don't know if I'm going to be able to keep going with it, so uh, that's unfortunate. But uh, Dear White People Season 3 is on Netflix right now, and The Handmaid's Tale Season 3 is available on Hulu. Let's move into what we've been
4: eating. Brad, what have you been eating recently? Junk, junk, junk. Tons of junk. Uh, As usual, I've uh, seeked out some things that uh, aren't the best for me. Well, one thing is at least better for me anyway. But uh, first off, I went to find the new Krispy Kreme uh, Reese's Peanut Butter Filled Donuts. <clears throat> and uh, they did not disappoint. Uh, this is uh, Krispy Kreme has, in general, these new donuts that they introduced uh, this year, where instead of uh, ha- donuts that have the filling like in the middle uh, that don't have a hole in them, they actually have donuts that are the normal donut shape that have filling in the entire donut ring. And that's exactly what these Reese's filled donuts are. Uh, And they're based on the um, Reese's also released new versions of their peanut butter cups where one is called chocolate lovers and one is called peanut butters. Uh, And one has the chocolate one has a little bit more butter lovers. One has another layer of peanut butter on on top of the cup in place of the usual chocolate that's on top. And so these uh, donuts are the same way where they have a peanut butter lover and a chocolate lover one. And uh, they're both fantastic i think i like the chocolate lover one a little bit more but the the filling inside uh it's not just peanut butter it's obviously like a peanut butter cream um but the the taste is very good it's pretty close to the reese's uh peanut butter filling and yeah i really like them and yeah you can get them at any crispy cream location they'll even se- they even sell them in like uh two packs so that you can try each of the the different ones and so they're they're good And you also uh, participated in meme
0: culture, right?
4: (laughs) I I did. Um, The the Popeye's chicken sandwich is obviously a big deal right now. Everybody's talking about it. There's lines all over the place. Um, And last week, we actually went to... There's actually a a Popeye's that hasn't been open for too long nearby here. Uh, So we went over there, and things were not... Very crazy at all. The, the the line over there has generally been longer because it's newer, but it wasn't any more long than it's been uh at any other time. So we waited we in the drive-thru for a little bit and I got the spicy version of the chicken sandwich, which I enjoyed quite a bit. I think it's uh better than Chick-fil-A's chicken sandwich, which I've never really understood the hype for. Like it's fine. Uh, but I've never really gotten the, you know, just the love that everyone has for Chick-fil-A, their, you know, personal politics notwithstanding, just the chicken sandwich side of things. Uh, so I think it's better than that. And I, I I like it more than the Wendy's spicy chicken sandwich as well. And it's, it's a good sandwich. Unfortunately, apparently it's sold out now, even though I think that's just their way of trying to get people to stop coming to Popeye's and <laughs> demanding the sandwich. But once it comes back in... Uh, higher supply, it's it's worth trying out. It's it's a pretty good chicken sandwich. <laughs> and and forgive <laughs> me if you just answered this or or what, but um,
0: uh, Chris, I think you asked in our Slack the other day, like, is this a new chicken sandwich? Like,
4: how did this whole thing begin? So from what I understand, I I think that the chicken sandwich was available in certain areas previously, but it just recently went like nationwide at all Popeyes locations. Oh, okay. All right. So it's so it's new ish uh, for most of the country. OK, that makes sense. Uh, all right. Yeah. And then there's one
0: other thing you've been eating, too, right?
4: Yeah. So the, the latest trend with pretty much all fast food places now is coming up with some kind of uh, meat substitute for all the people out there who are vegan but still want to eat fast food. And Burger King recently uh, released the Impossible Whopper. And uh, impossible is just the the word that's being used um by a certain company i forget what the company's name is to describe what is what are basically meatless burgers and sandwiches uh, so i want to try it see how it actually was and it's surprisingly good as somebody who absolutely loves cheeseburgers um, always tries to get one whenever i'm going to a new place i try to figure out what the best cheeseburger is in the area and i go out of my way to go there to check it out um for a fast food cheeseburger that is not made of meat it's actually uh very good i there's no weird aftertaste it it tastes as close to meat as non-meat can um and it's uh, it's not too much of a calorie reduction compared to the regular whopper but um, my girlfriend and I were talking about this the other day, you kind of, it doesn't feel quite as heavy after you're done eating it. Um, and I'm I'm not sure if that's just a, re- a result of, you know, it being made of, uh, not actual red meat, but, you know, something that is, are, you know, a little bit better for you anyway. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, it's the, this is the only one that I've tried that's like this. I know White Castle has, like, Impossible Sliders, uh, and I think the Hardee's and Carl's Jr. have, uh, their own Impossible Burger as well. But, uh, for, for a first try, I was actually... Uh, very impressed with it. All right. Uh,
0: let's talk about what we have been playing. Jacob, what have you been playing recently?
3: i play played a number of board games, so I'm going to go through them pretty quickly. i played a modern classic that I've never played before called The Havre, which is a game by Uwe Rosenberg, best known for Agricola. He's a German designer, uh, makes very complex games that are actually very simple in terms of what you have to do per turn. You only have you know a handful of options, but then but the options you have to make feed into a system that just requires you to try to think 10 turns ahead. And the Havra is trying to become a shipping magnet in a French port. And that involves collecting goods and shipping goods and building real estate and buying real estate and trying to form your little empire. And it's a game that starts off with maybe one or two things to do on the board. And as you add more and more, the options become plentiful to the point where you stare at the board and wonder what you're going to do next. It is not a game I'd recommend to everybody, but it is, it is a, a really well-liked classic for a reason in that it is going to break your brain. It is very good if you like the kind of thing. Uh, also played Century Spice Road. It is a very simple card game of using card combinations to collect cubes and turn cubes into other cubes in order to in order to get other cards in order to win the game. Very, very simple. Uh, teachable in maybe two or three minutes. And the Century series of games are interesting because you can combine them. It was uh, two more Century games, and if you combine the pieces, it comes with additional rules so that the first game and the second game become a third game. The uh, first game and the third third game become another game. So if you buy all three games, you get seven games in one. It's a very interesting set of interlocking game mechanics. It's very cool. Uh, On my birthday last night, I made everybody play Dead Last, which is a card game I enjoy very much, where it's literally everybody sits in a circle. You have a hand of cards, each representing other people uh, around you, and through any means you want, either out loud, whispering, handing cards around, text messaging, you plot to decide who in the circle you want to kill, and whoever gets the most votes dies, and the person who gets the most votes uh, plays an ambush card. They survive and kill somebody who tried to kill them, and eventually you whittle the entire group down until there's only one person left. is very simple, incredibly satisfying, and very brutal. People are getting very mad at each other in the best way possible. And finally, a game that may be out of print, I think, but it's worth hunting down is Snake Oil. And my problem with Cards Against Humanity as a party game is that you are essentially uh, not creating your own comedy. You are you are people play an offensive card, you play an offensive card, and the joke is written right in front of you. I don't play the game for a reason. Whereas Snake Oil is a game that has a similar vibe, but can be played completely clean. It can be played as dirty as you want, and it requires you to actually be creative. What happens is one player draws a card that says what kind of customer they are. It could be a mob boss, it could be a teacher, it could be an astronaut. Everybody has a hand of cards with random words on them, and they have to use two cards to combine them together to to make one product and pitch that product to that person. So that means just trying to look at a hand of of random objects or items and descriptions in your hand and try to figure out, oh, what kind of make that a mob boss would like. And you have thirty seconds to pitch the funniest or most useful item available, and it's a big hit. It's a big hit with families, with kids, with adults. I've seen it played you know, PG. I've seen it played R-rated. It's just a really, really good time that requires you to actually think about your joke, which is my favorite kind of a comedy board game. Nice. Uh, I just remembered that I played the Cinephile
0: card game um, this is a, a new movie-themed card game. It's a lot of fun. It, it basically comes with two decks of cards with a bunch of actors. Uh, th- there's one actor on each card and a movie that they're in underneath it. And uh, you can actually just go to cinephilegame.com to you know see some of the, the images and, and figure out exactly how to play. But it's basically a game that, that offers several different ways to play. There's like a, a pretty easy one where you basically just draw a card and... Um, each player goes back and forth naming a movie that that person that actor was in, and uh, you know whoever just can't come up with one loses the round. Um, there's ones where you uh, you have to name a movie that that person is in, and then the next person has to name an actor from that movie, and then another person has to name. Uh, a movie that that person was in and it goes back and forth that way so there are several different ways i think there's like at least six different ways uh, or five different games that you can play but the cool part about it is that it's it's basically a free-for-all like you you have the pieces to sort of do whatever you want you can you know if you're somebody like jacob who has played a ton of card games and and knows this world pretty well i'm sure you can you know, piece together your own rules from different games that you love playing and and sort of remix yourself uh, a new version that is like customizable to you and your friends. So um, it my wife and I played it just the two of us the other night, and it was pretty fun. It's, um, you know, you, you do have to know a little bit about movies to play. So it's not like uh, you could just drop in with um, you know, people who see like one movie a year and because it probably wouldn't be too fun with them. But if you're listening to this podcast and you have other friends who also love movies, I would recommend uh, getting Cinephile, a card game, and check that out. And uh, yeah, maybe throw that into your next game night because I feel like it would be a lot of fun with a bunch of people. So um, that is called Cinephile. And uh, yeah, I think that's going to do it for today's episode of Slash Film Daily. Before we go, let's just go around the circle and tell people where they can find more of our work online. Uh, Jacob, let's start with you.
3: I'm on SlashFilm.com every day. I'm on Twitter, where I'm at Jacob S. Hall. Brad?
4: On Twitter, at Ethan underscore Anderton, always at SlashFilm.com, and also my own podcast, Go Flix Yourself, on iTunes and other podcasting platforms. H.T.
1: I'm also every day at SlashFilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at H.TranBui.
2: Chris? Uh, Also, SlashFilm.com and Twitter at C evangelista 413 I am at SlashFilm.com as well. You can find
0: me on Twitter and Instagram at Ben Pears, and you can find a bunch of great stuff at SlashFilm.com. I would encourage you to go to that website. Uh, slash film daily is published every weekday bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and tv as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site you can subscribe to the show on itunes google podcast overcast spotify all the popular podcast apps and send your feedback questions comments and concerns to us at peter at slash make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air also don't forget to rate and review the podcast on itunes tell your friends spread the word and we will talk to you tomorrow
3: Hey. Hey, Ben.
0: Yes, Jacob. I have, I have the book. I am so excited for this. I can't even tell you.
3: The Gargantuan Book of Insult, Offense, interfunnery by Louis A. Safian. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure I found the meanest page so far.
1: <laughs> oh, oh, no.
3: Now I genuinely can't wait. For this. Like, uh, I, I usually try to maintain some kind of character when I do this. But this is the page where the book kind of shows its age and, in, in ways that are kind of upsetting. Uh, if you guys are ready, <laughs> I, I is, guess so. Is, is Jacob
4: gonna use racial slurs? <laughs> yeah, I'm Bad. wondering
3: what that means. Uh, we'll start. We'll start with the darkest one. Uh, ben, Ben was a premature baby. He was born before his parents were married. <laughs> wow. Okay. All right. Yeah, yeah. Because you see, uh, it's it's funny when parents aren't married. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Hilarious. Uh, Ht, she hasn't been herself lately. Everyone wishes she would stay that way.
1: Oh, my.
4: Harsh.
3: (laughs) Uh, Brad, his parents never struck him, except in (laughs) self-defense.
4: Man, (laughs) okay.
3: (laughs) And Chris, he's like a male baby bee, a son of a bee. Whoa, man. (laughs) Chris's mom's going to be mad. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I hope you all feel sufficiently insulted. And a and affronted. <laughs>